You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church on Sunday, July 26, 2020. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. Thank you, Adrienne, for reading God's Word this morning. Um, if, as you were following along with it, you might, um, you might be aware that we're going to get a little uncomfortable this morning. Um, God's Word this morning invites us into one of the single most uncomfortable dinner, dinner parties in the entire Bible. Um, if not the entire Bible, at least one of the most uncomfortable dinner parties in Jesus' entire ministry. Um, so as you get settled to go through God's Word, just go ahead and set your mind for a moment on a moment when you've experienced something like that, if you want to feel a bit of the mood of the moment in the text. And think back to a, a very uncomfortable dinner party that you have been to. Uh, maybe you were at a dinner party one time when a guest of someone who had been invited came and found themselves sticking their foot in their mouth as they insulted the host unaware. I had a story of a good friend who found himself in that situation as he chose a moment at a dinner party to give his opinions, a very unpopular opinion about the state of healthcare in this country, only to realize that a surgeon had hosted the dinner. Think back to a very uncomfortable moment like that in your own life that you have been in, or maybe you were the person making it uncomfortable, because Jesus is going to take us into such a moment this morning. Uh, in our text this morning, we are, we are at a dinner party that has a very dubious beginning, and it gets very uncomfortable very quick. And Jesus is going to use this moment at this party to continue to expose the, the nature and the character of his kingdom through a series of parables for those who will have ears to hear him. So the reality of it is that the story and the dinner party actually starts back in verse 1. So let me just catch you up real quick to where the parables begin in verse 7. Back in verse 1 of chapter 14, it begins this way. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they, speaking of the Pharisees and those who were at this party, they were watching Jesus carefully. So Jesus has accepted an invitation to go have dinner with those he knows are against him, who seek to do him harm, who seek to discredit him, who seek to destroy his ministry. And I just, I love, this isn't the point of the whole story, but I just love this about Jesus, that he willingly and gladly accepted the invitation. He went joyfully with his whole self to this dinner. He wasn't afraid of this group. He wasn't trying to avoid this group. He knew that they were watching him. He knew what they were trying to do. And so in verses two through six, it begins awkwardly from the jump. They bring in a man who, who your translations probably say has dropsy. One of his legs has gone lame and he has a difficulty walking. And they bring this man to the party as a trap because they're trying to see if Jesus is going to heal him on the Sabbath. And if Jesus were to heal him on the Sabbath and he would be violating God's law, then they could begin to discredit Jesus. And Jesus takes the moment to do what only Jesus can do. He heals the man, but in that moment, he exposes the hypocrisy of those that are there and, and leaves them speechless. Now, if it were me, this would probably be the moment where I exited the dinner party. Having realized what was going on, having made myself known, having exposed the reality of what was happening, this would have been my own kind of drop the mic, we'll see you guys later, 
you're not going to get me now moment, but not Jesus. Jesus sticks around to enjoy, so to speak, the rest of the dinner party, and it just continues to get more uncomfortable and more awkward. And so for the rest of the verses, in verses 7 through 24, there, there are really three main kind of movements of dialogue that all happen at this dinner party where they are seeking to entrap Jesus and discredit him, where from the beginning, Jesus has already exposed something of their hypocrisy, and he's going to stick around for the rest of the night. And so there's three main movements of his conversation with them. And the first one happens in verses 7 through 11, where Jesus speaks to all the guests that are present there at the dinner. And then The second one happens in verses 12 through 14 where he speaks very particularly to the host of this party. And then verses 15 through 24, Jesus kind of jumps off of something that one of the guests has to say. And he speaks very pointedly to that guest, but he's speaking to everyone that's present. And as I thought about it just this very morning, getting ready to walk out here, I I don't know that we're going to get all the way through the dinner party. We'll see how it goes. It's going to be so uncomfortable that we may just kind of cut it off where somewhere along the line, but but we'll see together. But take all these moments of of dialogue and and put them all together. And Jesus is again helping us to see how the word of his kingdom, the, the gospel, cultivates in his people a sacrificial generosity, a countercultural humility. And then he's gonna close it if we get there with a consider, with a consideration for everyone who's listening as to whether or not they're going to participate in the joy of his kingdom. It's a very uncomfortable dinner party. So let's get to it. Verse 7. Jesus, he, he now, having dealt with the issue of healing the man and their hypocrisy, he, he tells a parable to everyone who was invited. So he's speaking to everybody. And he noticed how they were choosing the places of honor. So Jesus is, is in the room, try to get yourself there. We're going to talk more about the party and how it works in just a little bit. But just put yourself kind of in the big room. All the guests are there. In that day and age, where they sat was very structured. You and I have a loose understanding of it. You know if you, you come into someone's home and it's a big dinner party, you're going to try to avoid sitting at the head of the table. I mean, you know the head of the table is probably for either the host or, or someone else. That's, that's kind of the, the place of honor if you want to put that language on it. But you just know, I'm going to avoid the head, right? That's not where I'm going to go. Well, there, everything was structured. Those who were the honored guests of the actual party, they had particular places at the table, and it kind of worked from that person downward as to how important you were in the party, right? So Jesus is there in the room, and he's recognizing how everyone there is trying to jockey to get the really good places. Somehow or another, they all presume themselves to be worthy of the positions of honor, So while we saw in the very beginning of the chapter, they were watching Jesus, seeking to discredit him, Jesus is watching them too. He's got his eyes on how their heart is giving rise to their particular behaviors, and he notices them jockeying. So while he's watching, Jesus begins to tell a story to everybody who's present, and I don't imagine him standing up and waving his arms to get everybody's attention. I imagine him speaking very clearly to someone nearby, and people slowing down to listen to what he says. Jesus says, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't sit in the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by the person of honor. 
And he who invited you both will come and say to you, hey, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. And then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. Now, we don't know what they began to do when he began to tell this story. I imagine it got quiet and everybody kind of sat down. It was a bit probably like musical chairs there for a moment, but then everybody kind of got quiet and I think he's insulting us. I don't, I don't know exactly what he's doing right now. But Jesus is watching them kind of jockey for the best position. And so he tells a story and he takes their minds immediately away from the moment of the party to another time in a similar situation to a wedding feast. And we all know what wedding feasts are like. We know what wedding receptions are like. We know what wedding parties are like. Being a pastor, I've been to my fair share of weddings and and wedding receptions. And so let's just put what he's saying for a moment in a little more of a contemporary sense, in a more contemporary scene, and maybe it won't seem so distant. Just imagine yourself coming into a wedding. Maybe you're on time. I don't I don't know exactly what on time is. It's probably early, but let's just say you, you come in and everybody's seated in the, in the room like this. You walk into the back and there's a little bit of a line to kind of get in. And it's, it's crowded. Everyone's come to see this wedding and, and you make your way through the doors right back here and you look down and you go, wait a minute, there's some seats down front that are empty. Why is everybody sitting in the back? It's like Sunday morning. Why is everybody back there? There's always seats up front that are empty. And so you walk into the wedding and you make your way up front and you sit down in the front. But here's the thing, who sits in the front? That's grandma's seat, right? The people who come in last, right before the bride. It's the family, it's the people of honor, it's the intimate family. That's grandma's seat, but you just walk in and you walk all the way down front and get a good view. What's gonna happen? Some very nervous usher. They're going to stand in the back and they're going to take straw poles to see who has to come down and talk to you because no one thinks they're going to have to do anything actually, but they're going to have to come down and talk to you. Say, excuse me, would you mind getting up? This is, this is grandma's seat. And you're going to have to stand up, turn around, look at everybody in the room and take that walk of shame back down the room, back down the aisle, find yourself in the, the back of the room or in the balcony somewhere and everyone's going to have watched and everyone's going to talk about it and for every anniversary they're going to tell the story of you sitting in grandma's seat, having to get up and, and walk your way back. Jesus is saying, don't, don't be that guy. Listen, come in and go ahead and sit in the back. Let someone from the family see you. That's my friend. That's the one I love. Let, let them ask you to come closer. Let them place you at the table next to the wedding party and the family at the reception. Don't jockey for that seat closest to the the in-laws and to the family. Let them put you there, lest you have to be removed. Jesus is saying humility beats humiliation every single time. Jesus is using the story in the moment to put his finger on something that's happening, to begin to expose and in a sense, lay an ax to the root of pride that exists in all of our hearts. This innate desire to exalt ourselves, that's what was happening in the moment in the story. Pride is evil. It's, it's horrible. And the sad reality of it is we all struggle to actually believe that. 
At the root of all sin is pride. In fact, it was Augustine who said that pride is like a mother who is pregnant with every other sin. It's pride and the quest for self-exaltation that drives our contemporary quest for self-fulfillment, for self-actualization. It's pride that begins to deceive us into thinking that those are actually our greatest human needs. Friends, you and I, we exist for God's glory and not our own. The word of the kingdom is very clear. We exist to love and honor and serve and enjoy God with all that we are, that in that joy we may be free to go and love our neighbor and serve our neighbor as ourselves. But if in pride you and I sit on the throne of our own lives, then what happens? You and I expect other people to be the means to the ends of our fulfillment. We don't find ourselves worshiping God as we serve and love others. This is the word of our day. This is the stock and trade of our world. It's ingrained into the fabric of our culture. It's, it's in my heart as I communicate these very words. But Jesus is about to do something. We have in, in verse 11. He, he's going to take this reality and he's going to He's going to take it from a teaching about social graces, right? And he's going to elevate it into the reality of a kingdom dynamic. For everyone, he says in verse 11, who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now that verse is a sermon unto itself. And if you ever come across any kind of teaching on Luke chapter 14, this is probably going to be taught by itself. On one level, this very first little dialogue and parable, it does speak to the human condition of of pride working its way out like this. And there's an irony in it. There's an irony to self-promotion. You know it as well as I do. Those who work the hardest at promoting themselves often end up being disliked and not receiving the promotion because everybody can actually see it. And he's saying on on the surface, don't be that guy, but there's a much deeper reality. When Jesus says everyone here, he's taking what he's communicating here and he's bringing it into a kingdom dynamic. He's elevating it to the the issue of a gospel. Remember the crowd. Remember those he's talking to. The room was full of Pharisees, religious leaders, self-important people at this party. And Jesus says everyone who exalts themselves Everyone who is going to hear the word of my kingdom and take the posture with God that I've done enough, that I deserve acceptance. Everyone who is going to jockey for the seat of honor in the presence of God, who's going to come to him with the idea that I deserve his forgiveness, I deserve his righteousness, Everyone who seeks to stand before God and say, look at all of my good deeds, now accept me. Those who seek to enter and enjoy my kingdom on the basis of their own behavior as they exalt themselves, they'll be humbled. Friends, that's religion. 
And Jesus says anyone who's going to posture themselves before God on that foundation will be rejected. But, as we've seen week after week going through the parables, those who hear the word of the kingdom and take the posture of humility with God, I I deserve rejection. Please forgive me. For those who take the lower seat in the presence of the Almighty, God will receive and God will accept. And even greater, Jesus says, God will exalt. That, my friends, is the word of the kingdom, the gospel of salvation by grace. Jesus is reminding those who be in earshot of him at this party, those who seek to discredit him, those who have a different idea of who God is and the Messiah that God has promised. Jesus is saying, for those who have ears to hear, the word of the kingdom you're so ready to hear, the word of the kingdom you've been anticipating for generations, the word of the kingdom is one to be received by humility. And it's the word of the kingdom, the gospel, that gives the very humility required to receive it for those who have ears to hear it. It's the word that says our sin is so deep Our sin is so heinous in the eyes of God. Our ability to make ourselves right before him is so, so utterly unable to actually happen. That in his wisdom, he made a way for his love to be shown to us as he sent his son to live the life that we were created to live and die the death we deserve to die for our sins so that his justice and his wrath could be fulfilled and his grace and the righteousness of his son be freely given to all who those who would hear and receive. The humility required to receive and to hear the word of the kingdom is given in the very word of the kingdom itself. It gets very uncomfortable at this dinner party. But Jesus is again reminding them the nature of his kingdom. And just think for a second, what happens? What happens when God exalts you? What happens when God, by his grace, receives you into his family? What happens when God gives you the new heart that he has promised and dwelt by his very spirit, giving you new desires, desires that mirror his desires as he begins to transform you into the image and likeness of his son? What happens when the praise of God so fills your heart that you recognize and live out of your acceptance by him, your righteousness before him? What happens in you when that begins to be the center of your life? This is the kingdom dynamic at work within you. Do you know what happens? The gravitational center of your life, of your heart, has now changed. The gravitational center of your being has been transformed. Previously, there were other things, good things that probably have become main things that we've tried to put in that place in our heart and in our lives that have driven our attitudes, our thoughts, our actions, and our behaviors. They've driven our lives. They have been replaced now by the gravitational reality of the kingdom of God's grace at work within us. Now, with God as the gravitational center of our life, there's no need any longer for you and I to be so driven by, so passionate about jockeying, so to speak, in the sense of the story, for a particular position or station in our life anymore. 
I mean, prior to the gravitational center of our heart being changed by the grace of God, prior to our heart being filled up with the praise of God, having been exalted by his grace, the identity that we so desperately seek, the security we so desperately wanted, was trying to be found in all these different things. So we spend our life trying to put them in the center in hopes that they will bring all those things to us, but now it's changed. The gravitational pull is different. No longer does our life have to be defined by a passionate pursuit or a drive for those things to provide for us what they were never meant to provide before. There's no need in the sense of the story for the constant positioning for social and professional position. Your passion in life is no longer having to pursue that social ladder anymore. If someone invites you in, fine, that's great. But it's no longer what drives you. It's not the gravity anymore. Now think for a second. What, if that's a reality, if the gravitational center is changing because of the gospel, if, if you're taking a particularly new posture in your heart and life because of the work of the gospel in you, because of the word of the kingdom that you have received, that's alive and at work in your heart, What do you think that might mean, very particularly for your relationship with your resources? Right? If the gravitational center of your heart is now the enjoyment of God, you're free from having to find any sense of identity and security and esteem in all of these things in life. When your heart is filled and you enjoy the wealth of God's praise and acceptance of you by his grace, the exaltation that God brings to his people, do you think that we might be more free to be able to let go of our resources in order to love and serve the spiritual and physical needs of others? Humble sacrificial generosity is one of the principal marks of the people of God's kingdom. We often don't see it when we read the chapter, but it's a very strong undercurrent in all of these stories, and it shouldn't surprise us because it's an essential reality of Jesus' teaching ministry. Jesus is after people's hearts. He's after our hearts in these stories. In particular, he, he challenges our relationship, the heart relationship we have with our stuff. It's an uncomfortable dinner party. He's chipping away at a lot of very big things here in one moment. Watch how it happens. Verse 12, second set of dialogue, lest you think I'm making this up. Jesus said to the man who had invited him, now he's going to speak to to one particular person, but everybody's going to hear it. It's not like a private spot, right? He said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and, and you be repaid. Now, I told you we would talk about these parties a little bit because now you've got to understand the bigger sense of these parties to really catch the thrust of what Jesus is saying. We had a moment where we talked about how people sat very specifically depending upon guests and honor and stuff, but now there's a bigger system at work. Back in the Greco-Roman world of Jesus' day, the culture operated on what was called a patronage system. 
It was a system of the way the culture actually worked. Now, you know more about it than you think, okay? The patronage system operated this way. There were particular wealthy people who became known as and took a social office, a social position known as being a patron. And what those patrons would do is they would give money, they would open up opportunities for people that became known in their circle as favorites. So if you wanted to, if you wanted to change your station in life, if you wanted to climb the social ladder, so to speak, in the Greco-Roman world and the system of patron, what you would have to do is you would have to find a patron who was willing to take you in as one of his favorites and then give you what? You know the word. Favors. They would give you money. They would give you opportunity. They would open up their network to you. And what did they get in return? They got you where you were doing things for them. So this is how the system would work. And so what would happen, these, these patrons would throw these large and elaborate parties, dinner parties, where they would bring their network of favorites in along with some other patrons and their favorites as well. And what would happen? New relationships are formed. Networks are expanded. New opportunities come. And though these parties cost them a ton of money, they were nearly always repaid by the expansion of their network. And what they would receive in return from their favorites, who they were giving favors to, so that they could change their station in life. Make sense? That's the context into which Jesus is speaking right here. These were parties that were chances for existing bonds to be strengthened and new ones to be formed. So just in case the dinner party wasn't awkward enough already, Jesus looks at the host and he says, next time you throw a party, how about you not invite all the people who are just going to invite you back and repay you everything you've already spent? How about you not spend so much money on this party knowing you're going to get it all back in return and probably increase your income somewhere down the road because of this party? How about you not do that? And how about when you give a feast, verse 13, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed. Why? Because they can't repay you. Now, first off, we've got to deal with something Jesus isn't saying and you hear people talk about this all the time. Normally, we don't always go, well, this isn't what it means. But if we hear somebody or we read things often that communicate something that's a bit off, we try to say it when we're trying to clarify on Sunday. So Jesus is not saying here that you're no longer to have luncheons and dinner parties and parties with your friends and family. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not anti-community. Somebody make that t-shirt. Jesus is anti-community. Jesus is not saying do that. This is an example. Uh, we have many of them in the Bible. In fact, there's one, just a few verses after these stories. I'll tell you about it in just a second. This is an example of, of a Semitic language, a Semitic idiom, a statement, a, a group of words put together that means something to those who understand the language. That's what it is. This is a Semitic idiom. Another example of it that you're very familiar with, and it will help clarify what he's saying here and show you there's an undercurrent here that we often don't talk about it. You find it in chapter 14, verse 26. So just two verses after this dinner party. 
Jesus says something to those who are following him that you're all familiar with. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you have to what? Hate your father and your mother. Isn't that what he says? Look down, verse 14, verse 26. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That is another example of a Semitic idiom. Jesus is not tossing out the Ten Commandments right there. God's law that has said to honor your father and your mother. He's not saying, well, don't worry about that anymore. Hate them. Hate everybody you're related to. You got to hate all your relatives if you're going to follow me. No, it's an idiom. It means your love for me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Your love for me is to be so great, such a priority in your life, so consuming of your heart, that your very natural and very appropriate love for your mother, your father, your husband, your wife, your children, your relatives, will look like hate in relationship to your love to me. That's what it means. That's an idiom. That's how it works. What Jesus is saying right here to this host is another Semitic idiom. In light of that reality, what's Jesus actually saying? He's making a very bold statement about the relationship of our heart to our stuff. Tim Keller was very helpful for me on this this week. Keller said this, when, when it says don't give parties for your friends, it's like saying don't do the things necessary to maintain your current place in life. Particular choices of entertainment, certain restaurants to eat at, it's like saying don't buy certain clothing brands. It's like saying don't do what you think you have to do to maintain your place in society. He said those things are all equivalents for what those parties were back then. So Keller said this, Jesus is not saying don't do that. What he's saying is your, your giving to ministry by which you give people spiritual life so people find faith and your giving to charity so people get physical life because they're fed when they're hungry, should be massively more than the money you spend on maintaining your station in life. Those particular hobbies and clothes and vacations. That's what those suppers represented. That's what Jesus is saying, Keller said. Not that you should never spend any money on yourself, but that the money that you give to the work of the gospel ought to be massively more. That's the way the idiom works. He's saying your giving to the work of the gospel, the ministry of the gospel, must have priority. And it must be sacrificial. It's a real uncomfortable dinner party, isn't it? Right? In the context of his idiom about loving your family, right? He said your love for me should exceed all of that because it's a priority for you. If you had to choose your family or me, your love for me should mean you choose me. He's saying the same thing here. You've got to read it in the same context. Your investment in the advancement of the kingdom and in ministry to see people hear the name of the gospel, the name of Jesus, to come to know the confidence and the grace of God in Christ. Your money spent so that people who are hungry can be fed, who have no home can find a roof over their head. You're spending on ministry. You're spending on charity, whatever you call it. It's to be a necessity, a priority. 
What you spend on yourself is actually the optional and negotiable part. They're just sitting there having to listen. And no one's kicked him out yet. He's still taught. They understand the idiom, right? I'm having to take a lot of words to explain it. They understood it. Let's be honest. That's, That's not the way it really works in our heart right now, is it? It doesn't in mine. We all have have certain standards of living that we want. Let's just be really honest. We all think we deserve, right? No one wants to say it. You're not going to raise your hand. You're going to look down, shuffle your feet. I know. I, I feel it too. We all have certain standards of living we think we're entitled to and deserve. And Jesus is literally throwing our thinking upside down on our head. We all think we have to have certain things because there's a certain station in life that we're supposed to have. And if we go after those things, and once we achieve those things or at least come close to them as we spend our resources, our time, our money, our our energy on those things, we'll look at what we have left and go, well, what part of it do I want to give to see people come to know the name of Jesus or, or to see needs being met in people's lives? Let's just be honest, right? Jesus is saying it's supposed to be the opposite. He actually flips that thinking on its head. The logic gets reversed. The priorities are different. If that's going to be the case, it means there are going to have to be sacrifices to be made. That kind of investment, that kind of giving, it becomes very sacrificial. See, Jesus says, you keep spending your money this way. He's talking about the party, right? Back to the party. You're spending your money this way. You're throwing these enormous, lavish parties. You're spending your money ultimately on yourself because you know you're going to get it back. Your network is getting bigger. The favors owed to you are getting greater. It's no real sacrifice for you to do this, even though if we looked at the line item on the receipt, it would make our jaw drop because you're going to get it back. You're ultimately spending it on yourself. Spend it on the poor. That would be money spent and not returned. One is sacrificial and one isn't. What Jesus is saying is in line with everything else the Bible teaches us about our heart and our stuff. In fact, in the Old Testament, we won't get into the details. Old Testament, the standard in relation to this in the Old Testament was the tithe. It was 10%. But if you begin to add in all the feasts and all the sacrifices, all the festivals, all the things we're required to bring to those things, scholars have done the math trying to find the equivalents and do all the different numbers. It's roughly between 22 and 26% of someone's annual income. In the New Testament, Jesus actually says to a Pharisee in the midst of a dialogue, you should tithe. Jesus didn't get rid of that. You should tithe. He's not against it. But what the rest of the New Testament emphasizes is not some kind of numerical percentage. He's always after our heart. And it's always talked about in reference to a sacrifice. It's an uncomfortable dinner party. I told you, get ready to be uncomfortable. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul writes this letter to the Corinthian church, one of four we know he wrote. And he's imploring the church in Corinth to, to give resources, to give money to the poor in Jerusalem. And he encourages them through the testimony of the church in Macedonia. Paul says that they gave as much as they were able and beyond their abilities. What does that mean? 
They made sacrifices to give what they gave. There were probably things they wanted, not wrong to want them, probably things they wanted they chose not to have. Probably opportunities that they could have capitalized on, not bad in themselves, they chose not to pursue. They gave beyond what they were able, which means they made a sacrifice. And so I I know my heart when I come across something and I think to myself, oh, man, I would love, I would love to be able to invest more in that opportunity for the kingdom, but I can't afford to do it. Often what I really mean is I, I can't afford to do it without sacrificing something I want. What Jesus is saying is this, that's the point. This kind of kingdom dynamic working out in the lives of his people. He gives the illustration of this, this feast, this invitation, and the guest list on the invitation. It's not so much about the guest list per se. It's about what it means to the host. Remember who he's talking to. This kingdom dynamic working out, this sacrifice working out in the heart of God's people, it, it means there's places we don't go and things we don't buy because our heart is captivated, captivated by the work of the kingdom and our willingness to sacrifice for the sake of the name of Jesus being known and the well-being of others being met is so great. Listen, Jesus is not laying a guilt trip this morning. Just like the last dialogue, I'm sorry, my microphone keeps slipping. Just like the last dialogue, the very first one, where Jesus helps us to see how the word of the kingdom, the gospel, works in us to produce the very humility required of those who will receive it. It's the same word of the kingdom that actually does the work in the hearts of God's people to produce a desire and a courage for such a sacrificial generosity. It's actually the same gospel that frees us here to live in the way that Jesus is talking about. Listen to what he says, verse 13. When you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they can't repay you. Now listen, for, why, why, why? What's he say? For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. One of the impediments, not the only impediment, but one of the primary impediments to you and I living a life of joyful, sacrificial generosity is the fear of missing out. It's actually FOMO. It's actually legit. Be really honest. There's a part of you that probably thinks that by living the kind of sacrificially generous life Jesus is talking about for the glory of God and the good of others, you will be left out and missing out on something. You're afraid of watching people around you live the life you want and you think you deserve. I get it. Totally get it. I know it in my own heart. It's not the only impediment, but it's a big one. Especially when you turn on your phone and you look at everybody's timelines and everybody's, whatever you call them on Instagram, the the stream of things, and you're like, ah. Fear of watching other people live the life you think you deserve and you think you really want. It keeps us as God's people from living the kind of sacrificially generous life that Jesus is talking about here. And Jesus says this fear of of missing out on something. 
It's because there's something about the nature of the word of the kingdom. There's something about the message of the gospel our hearts have not yet grasped. There is no chance that you and I will ever miss out on anything that is going to captivate our heart with such joy. Why? Because of the resurrection. You see, the word of the kingdom, the message of the gospel, it, it doesn't end at salvation. It doesn't end at forgiveness. It doesn't end at adoption. It doesn't end at righteousness. It doesn't end at empowerment by the Holy Spirit. It doesn't end at sanctification and the work of the Holy Spirit making us more like Jesus. It doesn't end in glorification when we see him and we're like him. It ends in an eternity of a new heavens and a new earth. It ends in the fullness of physical experience that our human and finite minds right here and right now have a hard time grasping. It ends in a real eternity lived in the presence of God and the promises of a new earth. The reality of it is we don't talk and think about this enough anymore. This is a deficient aspect, not only to the teaching ministry of the modern Western church, it's a deficient aspect of the teaching ministry of this one. And the reality of it is you and I live in a place that is so comfortable and so easy. Our hearts and our minds never really have to be fixated on the hope of tomorrow. So our hearts and our minds get fixated on what we need right now. Because how could eternity be any better than this? There are parts of the world that don't wrestle with this. There are parts of the world where the, the hope of tomorrow and the promises of God in eternity are what they have. And so you go there and you're like, this is the most miserable place on earth and they're the most joyful people you ever meet. And you're like, how is that? It's because their hearts have caught the air of the gospel. Jesus says, you're not gonna miss out on anything. Your mind and your heart has been captivated by this false idea of of a a ethereal, disembodied eternity. We're glad we're not in hell, but we have no hope for what an everyday for eternity is going to be like. And because of it, we've held too tightly to the now. But that's not our future. Our future is more sensational than we can even have words to communicate. We know what the senses are that we have in the physical bodies we have now. I have no idea what they're going to be like in a perfect resurrection body. But we're going to get a perfect resurrection body. We're going to hug, we're going to touch, we're going to walk, we're going to feel, we're going to run, we're going to eat. We're going to experience things for eternity in the presence of God in a physical, tangible way that will make any sacrifice we have on this earth for His name's sake pale in comparison. But our hearts aren't captivated by it. So the fear of missing something in the here and now, because this is all there is when our minds get caught up in it. This is all there is. The fear of missing out keeps our, the grip on our stuff, on our here and our now so tight. But it's the same gospel that sets us free. Jesus is just helping them see, and they get it because the idiom is quick for them. He's helping them see. And sacrificing for the kingdom now and living in such a way that you're not going to get repaid for it now. 
and living a life of sacrificial generosity for the kingdom, you're not missing out on anything. The resurrection and the eternity God has promised makes a radically generous life now seem entirely sensible to God's people. But here's the thing. It, it, it seems entirely illogical to a watching world. So much so that take the two stories together, the two dialogues together, so much so that the life of humility that Jesus is talking about, a life of preferring the lower seat, a life whose gravitational pull is literally the praise and the exaltation of God, giving rise to a life of sacrificial generosity empowered by the hope of an eternity that nothing that our finite minds can even begin to compare to now. A kind of humility and a a generosity lived out like that demands from people a reason. It demands some kind of response for the hope that has so captivated your heart that you can live such a radically different life. That is the kingdom dynamic at work in the life of God's people. This is what Jesus is just slowly trying to expose each and every time with these parables. It's our lives lived in the enjoyment of the gospel. The grasping in heart of the increasing depths of God's truth and grace in our heart, freeing us then from the pride allowing us to live increasingly in the lower seat, in the humility, allowing us to be a people whose lives are marked by the kind of forgiveness that Tim talked about a couple of weeks ago, the kind of honesty and holiness we saw last week, the kind of generosity Jesus is talking about this morning, a people who so enjoy, to enjoy something, you put it to use. We've said this before. If someone were to give me the the thing that I so desperately wanted. I don't know what it would be. I just pick something I desperately want. They give it to me. How do I enjoy it? I use it. I, I use it. The enjoyment of the gospel is not simply the mental acquiescence to it. It's the ownership of it and the allowance of it to change us from the inside out. It is the ongoing joy of repenting from the kind of pride that keeps us from living in humility. It's the ongoing enjoyment and the freedom of the gospel, believing that God is who he says he is and his promises are what they say they are. And it changes the way that we relate to ourselves and the world and the people around us. Friends, it is this ongoing enjoyment of the gospel that wages a uh, tremendously, I don't even know what the right word is, wages such a better campaign for transformation and such a better campaign for hope than anything that you and I could ever create on Facebook and Instagram or TV or print. It's our lives lived in the enjoyment of the gospel. This is the word of the kingdom. As Jesus says repeatedly, may we have ears to hear that we might one day hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter forever the joy of your Father. 
Let me pray for us this morning and we'll have a moment to reflect and then respond together. Jesus, thank you for making us awkward for your glory and our joy. Lord, you never, you never keep from us what's necessary for our deeper and more abiding joy in you. So God, we ask this morning as we continue to hear, give us ears to hear your, your word in these stories. Give us ears to hear your grace and your mercy to us. Lord, give us tastes for the things of your kingdom. Lord, help us where we have, where we have cut off the message of the gospel, where we've made it solely about forgiveness, as great as that is, and we've, we've somehow put aside the hope of tomorrow, the reality of being in your presence, the reality of a new heavens and a new earth, and, and something so much more, so much more than what we can even get our hands around now, where we have put that aside and our hearts have held so tight to here and now because we think this is really it. Lord, set us free. Help us this morning to hear the fullness of the word of your kingdom. Let the hope for eternity with you animate the lives we live today, tomorrow, and the next day. We ask that you would do that this morning in Jesus' name for his glory, for our joy. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and hear other sermons, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.